60 men were killed in the worst special operations disaster in modern Residents history. Residents of Coronado, California, were shocked by the brutal murder of Lauren Reese and her three-year-old daughter. Navy SEAL Lieutenant home. Commander James Reese survived the ambush but is under investigation. Welcome to the Terminal List Podcast, an Ironclad original series. I'm Jack Carr, author of the Terminal List. On each episode, we break down a different episode of the Amazon Prime video series starring Chris Pratt. On today's episode, we are looking at encoding, episode two in the Terminal List series. I am joined by David DeGilio, the showrunner for the Terminal List, uh, has been by my side throughout this entire project, or I should say I've been by his side. It is such a, it's been such a pleasure bringing this thing to life. Also joined by Jared Shaw, the person who is responsible for making this a reality. Without Jared giving that book to Chris, this would not be happening. We would not be on this podcast. We would not have filmed this series during the height of COVID, giving 300-some-odd people jobs in LA at a very uncertain time. It's just, uh, it's crazy how all this came together. And if you're uh, just joining us for this episode, go back to episode one and you can hear about all the origins and and how all this came to be. But uh, this is also brought to us by Kansas City Cattle Company, which is veteran owned and operated. So that is very, that is just a a very appropriate um, sponsor for this podcast because we had so many veterans involved at uh, at every level of this production. So uh, such a cool thing. So thank you guys for, for taking the time. And I want to talk about the director, how we got Ellen, and then the title of this episode, Encoding. Um, Dave, when did, when did the, was Encoding on there from the beginning? I forget if it was on the original uh, uh, scripts for episode two or where that so, uh, came from. Yeah, we, we always like to, when we're building a series, just find some thematic for the episode titles. It's, you know, people don't really use them that much in the world of TV. So you kind of look for a through line for the whole season. And these are the different stages of memory. That's what these are. And they all relate to the, the memory process, what's going in our, our brains as we experience something and then internalize it and then hold on to it for future reference. And so encoding is, you know, that moment uh, after some shock event as your brain starts to process what's just happened and felt um, very apt for episode two after the events, uh, especially at the end of episode one. And then Alan Curris came to us. She's an incredible director. She's a former uh, director of photography, um, incredible woman who has worked in cinema uh, and then stepped over into TV. So she really fit our kind of Cinevision ethos in a great way. And um, and I had pursued her really on every show I've worked on. And finally, with this one, and as big as it is, uh, she was pumped. She was fired up. And um, she's so great. And And one of the best days, I think, on set was actually getting to introduce Ellen to Antoine and seeing how they hit it off because they have so many mutual acquaintances from the film world. And Antoine, people don't know this, but during COVID, he he kind of had this incredible um, directing van. And he would, it was a, a great way for him to have access to all the, the camera feeds. He had a microphone to set. He would come out when he needed to, but also to, you know, stay safe in our crazy, you know, COVID 
uh, world that we had on set. And Ellen coming into the van and I kind of was, you know, sitting on the, the edge of this conversation and just listening to two pros talk about the past and the present here and, and, and what makes the show special and the visual language of the show and realizing like, oh, we're going to be in great hands as we make this incredibly difficult pass off of 101 into 102. It's one of the trickiest parts of making a show. The pilot, you're given more time, more money, and then you have to keep everybody on their toes as you go into episode two on a much tighter schedule. Uh, oftentimes it's harder to prep because you're in the middle of shooting an episode while you're prepping yeah. the next episode. And uh, yeah, Ellen was remarkable. It, it crushed it for us. And it's so cool when, when I saw that first um, cut come in, because for me, this is my first time down this path and wondering, you know, how do these different directors, what vision do they bring to it? How do they do that? Yeah. And then seeing that opening scene that Ellen did right out yeah. coming out of one, I'm like, oh. This is perfect. I mean, couldn't have been, you know, couldn't have been a better person to, to, to bring us into this second episode. And I like to have a title as well. I like to have yeah. a title because uh, when I'm writing, because I don't want any bandwidth thinking wasted on, oh, geez, I better figure out a good title for this thing. I've had such good titles yeah. so far. So I don't want that anywhere in my head. So I need to start, even if it's a working title, uh, have it right there. So I have the title, I have the theme, I have a one page executive summary. I've turned that into an outline and then it's time to write. But, uh, so I I do, so I like having those titles. Um, and, uh, and this one, man, it opens up, it is powerful. You're coming off that, that season one or that's episode one ending. Um, and then boom, here we are. And there's photographs, there's flashes going off and, and there's this investigation and we have this amazing director and I want to talk a little bit about the bird that hits the yeah. window. Um, yeah. So we didn't really talk about it in the, in the first episode, but uh, where did the inspiration for that come from? I think that really harkens back to what we talked about um, in the one-on-one podcast when we talked about Antoine, Antoine Fuqua meets Alfred Hitchcock, that there's like a notion here that we can take a symbol and a piece of a memory that he can't quite grasp and you probably you know jack you know this term from from the writing side uh jared you've probably heard it about it through the filmmaking side but the notion of a, a macguffin right there's this this idea that hitchcock had um and and really the great storytellers of, of cinema have which is you got to have this one thing that your character is chasing but it, it can't quite can't quite get to it right and it's, it's kind of distilling a way bigger idea and emotion down into a much smaller goal. And what we did with the idea of the Starling memory is we created a kind of psychological MacGuffin for Reese. And so it's this memory that he's chasing throughout season one. He's going after it. You'll see it appear in various ways throughout the course of the season. But he won't be able to get to its true meaning until the very end of this story. And so here in episode two, we get to the context of this memory, right? We saw just beautiful, beautifully shot imagery of it in 101. And here in 102, we understand it was the morning of his final deployment. 
He's getting ready to leave. He's heading over. He's going to be in Syria soon. And um, on this morning, the, this kind of happy moment with his family was interrupted by a bird hitting the window. And that's all you get. That's it. Boom. And you're out. Because Reese's mind kind of folds in another memory, right? This notion of this assassin who attacked him in the MRI clinic. Boom. And those two timelines overlay and you're out. And what it kind of speaks to is is the unreliable narrator aspect. And, And Chris really loved this notion of tradecraft set against paranoia. That was our kind of goal for episode two and really into three, but especially episode two. All that, I mean, a lot of these scenes in two are are lifted from the book. But because we've got this unreliable narrator going on, this guy who you don't know if you can trust him, you have this question of what really happened to his family. And you have a lot of people asking this question of could he be involved? And that just keeps you on your toes throughout this episode. And that, plus Roos music, the incredible cinematography, we, we pass off. This is another thing that's interesting for people to, to learn is you hand off between directors of photography, between odd episodes and even episodes. So Armando Salas, who's doing our odd episodes, hands off to Evans Brown, who's doing our even episodes. And you continue to keep this train on the track in terms of look and feel. But the one thing that was key to this episode is to keep that question, especially in, you know, I think the, the book readers have a good sense of it, right? They're getting a little bit of surprise here, like, oh, wait, hold right. on. A little this, different. Yeah, like, a little different than the book. It's a little different, yeah. right? It's a little different. But it was all inspired by the moment in the book you have when he goes home so soon after his family has been taken from him. And I remember we spoke about this. It's like, that's heavy to walk back into that house where these horrors happened and live with it and what that would do to Reese and how it would drive him. So we took all of those ideas and just, again, just layered in that kind of Hitchcock psychology and had some fun with it. Right. And in the, in the book, you know, I have him sitting on the couch, uh, pistol in hand and, uh, you know, he wants to, wants to be with his wife and daughter. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and so, but he, but he can't cause there's still a mission. Yeah. There's still a mission to do. There's still a mission, yeah. right? And he can't, and, he, can't, and we, he can't leave quite yet. So, yep. uh, so then he lets it turn and then boom, we're, you know, time to flip that switch, go into operator mode and, uh, start figuring this thing out. But it's all because of that pistol and that, and that round and knowing that Boozer would not have used that pistol in that round. And, uh, you know, he has these feelings of course, but then, you know, we're in it and, and I just love the music that this one starts with. Ooh. It stands out to me. Um, yep. and, uh, and I haven't watched it in a, in a little bit in, uh, yep. in a week or so. Um, yep. but that music stands out is how it starts. Uh, and you, you, you know, we're, oh man, we're into something pretty special here. And, uh, this is eerie at the same time you have that, uh, you, you have this, uh, psychological element that the music plays too. And it's just, yep. man, it is fascinating. Um, and Jared, as you're going, going through this and we have the, we've, we're coming off funerals of, uh, of Reese's teammates and now we're into funeral of wife and daughter. Um, and, uh, man, how, what was it like seeing like working through all that, having been to, 
you know, funerals like, like we all have. Yeah, man, it, it was, there was no lack of hitting the emotional tones, you know, when going through this, I mean, it, on the day when this was being done, I mean, it was, it was, uh, you know, of course we're talking about first episode having the funerals for the, the platoon and then yeah, Lauren and Lucy, you know, that's a whole different dynamic when you, you start having those funerals you know and you see and then once again you just see chris and the way he drops into that you know and there's there's moments where i'd be watching it and i would forget that i'm watching a scene happening and to me that's one thing I, when i had those moments i knew we were striking gold you know i knew we were we were seeing what we needed to be seeing and those moments happened throughout the entire season i'll hit on them later as we we, we talk but those that was one of those moments that Lauren and Lucy, you know, funeral where you're like, Oh man, this is, this is heavy. You know, this is, this is it. You know, so it was, it was good. Yeah. Bad, yeah. Good. And we had, we, we were introduced to Josh Holder in, uh, you know, in, a, in, in episode one. Um, yep. but, uh, we we're going to reintroduce to him again here. Uh, and then we have the funeral scene and we're introduced to Marco. And I love when people yes. make comments on, uh, on social media or whatever, because that's what people can do these days. Uh, and they're like, Oh, it must be nice to have a friend like Marco. Uh, and I'm in my <laughs> head, I'm thinking it is. <laughs> uh, yeah. Marco's inspired by a real person. Um, I love it. and, uh, uh, who's very similar to the, uh, the Marco in the book and in the series as well. So um, it's, it's really cool for, for me to see that character brought to life, especially because because uh, you guys, I don't think we really ever talked about it more than uh, what I just mentioned now, but to yeah. see how he's brought to life on screen, it's, uh, it, it's really cool for me to see that. But when I see people say that, you know, about the book or whatever, I'm sure they'll, you know, they'll probably say it about the series as well. Um, yeah, he's fairly uh, closely related to an actual Marco that's uh, that's out there somewhere. Uh, so, th- so that character, he was, that was powerful too. I love that relationship between uh, Reese and, uh, and Marco. Um, I, absolutely. I, I think, you know, one thing that you do so well in the book is Reese loses his team. He loses his family, but he has that surrogate family, right? And that was something we, you know, really worked on in the casting of these three key characters, right? Marco del Toro, Ben Edwards, and Liz Riley. And you meet all three of them at the start of this episode. And as they're sitting around the campfire, I think you, you see very quickly this kind of genuine warmth and connection. And... Um, Marco Rodriguez, Tyna Rushing, like we've talked about Taylor Kitsch. Man, you know, especially I remember Tyner uh, just crushing it, Jared, in her audition. She's amazing. Oh, yeah. And and she was somebody we had to fight for because, you know, we're we're working and casting, you know, a ton of of huge name uh actors as we're moving through this. Tyner, she's had an amazing year, but you know, she, we cast her over a year ago right mm-hmm. before these things have dropped and uh, she's genuine she's authentic she's, she's so from good the south so good and there was nothing put on about that performance 
I mean, I remember our first call, she yeah. called me, uh, and we talked for a long time and, uh, you know, we're, we're friends now. And, uh, I remember that call. I mean, she was so serious. She wanted to know backstory, military stuff. Um, just like picking my brain about all these different things to create this character and become Liz Riley. And she did it, knocked it out of the park. Uh, there are huge things, uh, ahead for her. Um, cause yeah, what a special person, uh, to include taking flying lessons. She took flying lessons. Yeah, yeah. She took flying lessons to to become Liz, you know. To, to, to well, that makes sense because when you see her in that plane, when you see her just close a hatch and close the, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, whoa, how did she yeah. learn to do that? Yeah. Uh, you know, that looks yeah. that looks real. Um, it yep. may guess cause it was, or closing the doors or whatever she's doing on that plane looks so real. I mean, I don't really know what I'm talking about in planes, but it certainly looks real to me. Like she sells it. Yeah. Uh, and I guess yeah. that man taking flying lessons would, <laughs> will do it. Fully committed. Gosh, yep. that's incredible. Yeah. I love what Marco does. Could not have been cast better. Um, you know, same thing with Liz Riley with Tyner. Absolutely incredible. I love that scene around the campfire. Uh, cause that's right now he has a new family and it's a family that he needs because he is good at some things. Reese is very good at some things, uh, kicking in that door and snatching souls. Other things, yep. maybe not not so good at. So, um, so he needs this team, uh, and I love the conflict also that uh, gets explored. And you might have to search for it a little bit um, because he's taking friends into a dangerous situation, uh, yes. and it's his decision to do that. Um, and uh, you know, it, it is touched on um, in in the series, but it's something to me, I think will resonate with people that really sit down and watch this carefully because in real life you have to make decisions and maybe it's not life or death type things, but you get to decide, you know, who you're going to draw in to your circle and who you're going to include on things or who you're going to ask for help. Um, you know, all, all those things come into play. So I love how we, how we touch on that in this. Um, but then also Admiral, oh my gosh. Uh, wow. We, we cast Admiral Pillar. <laughs> legend. I mean, legend. Oh my gosh. Like, yep. Did you have him in mind? Like, how did, how did his casting come about? Uh, Antoine had worked with him on multiple projects, uh, including Training Day. And so when we got to, to that role, uh, we knew we needed this kind of combo of gravitas, of leader, but also from the book, that kind of political animal, right? Um, I can't remember if you see it in this episode or a later episode, but the but the I love me wall. Yeah, I think right? it's in this the one. The wall. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are some incredible photos that are put up there by the art department of uh, Admiral Pillar and his uh, celebrity go-tos. And that was such a crucial part of this character, such a crucial part. And Nick really just could hit all aspects of it. And then... Um, Matthew Roush, who's um, playing Jack Captain Howard, um, that guy crushed it. Fantastic actor. Um, he's got a smaller role in 102. We, we meet him mainly in 101. Um, and then LaMonica Garrett, Commander Cass. I mean, incredible. Stud. I mean, Stud. these guys being involved. Beast. I mean, I, I couldn't have cast that better. Couldn't have cast yeah. all of these these characters that we just talked about. Could not have cast them better. They all crush it. They all bring their A game. Um, and I mean, all such professionals. And I mean, absolutely incredible. And LaMonica, what a yeah. great dude. I mean, he did a did a yeah. book signing thing with me during my last book tour. I mean, what yeah. a solid guy. I mean, just love that guy. And all and these everybody was just yeah, so amazing. Yeah. Dave, do you Dave, you remember that that LaMonica had actually read for a different role? He read for a different role and we looked at him and we were like, there's no way this guy's, he, 
there's no way he's not playing a seal. There's no way like this guy. I mean, you look at that. He, I mean, he is, he's a stud in every, every, yeah. I mean, just total stud. And, and so he read for one role and we're like, nope, he's this, he's Cox. He's got yeah. like it. And, and, and we'll, we'll get to it in later episodes, but it, there was a reason that we knew we had to cast him. And, um, and he is another actor like Tyner who, after we finished filming, has had just a monstrous year. Crushed it in 1883, absolutely demolished it. It's so, so good. And again, you know, I think, you know, we talk about this. It's like, if we are not casting somebody with a military background, we have to cast an actor who is committed enough to train up and portray the military believably. And he is a guy who is all about commitment. And, and I love that about the group that ends up, you know, as a, let's call them our kind of war com trio, right? Every one of those guys just fits the billing perfectly. Perfect. All of those guys, yeah. you know, yeah. I, and sometimes like I have my own conflation, like we talk about conflation in this series and yes. oftentimes I have my own conflation thinking, wait, was that the book or was that the series or was it in the script or how did that? Uh, and, you know, one of the, Commander Cox is one of those guys who is uh, he's in the book but not like he is in the series. No. Um, yeah. And so, you know, for people that are expecting it to be exactly the same, you know, it's not. Um, and, but I love how it builds upon the foundation of the novel. Um, yes. And I love how there's surpri- there will be surprises for people that have an open yep. enough mind to not be like, oh, not exactly the same. I hate it. Um, yeah. But to realize, oh, and then I think people will have their own conflations after they watch this and think about, yeah. wait, who's in, in the book? Was yeah. he the, is, and yeah. like, and, but, but in a good way. Uh, in know, a great way. Yeah. So yeah. I love I love it. The Commander Cox character is uh is awesome and the Monica absolutely crushes it, you know, all these and, guys do. And and going back to something you brought up before Jack, uh, you know, you you mentioned that moment from the book where he's got the gun in his hand and he's you know, has to decide, right? We actually have that moment. The audience has to look for it, but it's the night of the creation of the terminal list. Reese is putting it together, right? About this guy, Agent Holder. Like how how was he both the first on the scene at Boozers and at the MRI clinic? And and you have this character in the book. He's later down the list in the book. But we were like, oh, here we go. Let's pull him forward because this is one it really depends on do you believe Reese or not? in terms of what he's doing here. And we have that powerful montage with the creation uh, of the term list. He writes Holder's uh, name on the back of Lucy's drawing. And then there's an incredible little moment that Chris um, came up with when we were in the MRI uh, clinic filming in 101, which is this quick shot of the gun to Reese's head. Yeah. And that was inspired by that moment. Nice. I didn't know it was inspired by that moment. I'm like, oh, this is just a cool like thing, you know, like inspired, inspired by that moment. And then he wakes up with a start and he's sitting next to Lauren's desk. And if you notice, he has a gun in his hand. And so that's the idea of conflation here. And the fun part of this show is like you can go back and rewatch it and see it and find things, little Easter eggs and connections to the book. He's also got um, Lauren's um, uh, music. Odd thing, yeah. Yeah, in in his ears. And um, 
And then one of the coolest stories from the filming of episode two is, like you said, from the book, he, he wakes up and he's got a mission. Mm-hmm. He's back on mission. He's got purpose again. And he starts to run. And you have this, this scene in the book. And we were like, okay, we need to get Reese running around Coronado. And we didn't have Chris Pratt at this point. He, he was off to, to Guardians with you, Mr. Shaw, right? He had left. Uh, and so we were down, I think it was September of last year, filming in Coronado. And we had picked spots with the Coronado Bridge and the Hotel Dell where we're going to get Reese running. That was then going to lead into the close-up of Chris coming in uh, to the team's building. And we had a double. Great dude. He had doubled Chris a lot throughout. And, uh, but not Romwell. A different double. And, uh, and he, he just couldn't run like Chris. <laughs> he couldn't run like him. Could not run like him. And, um, and so we're sitting there. We're going, oh, my God, we have a whole day of filming down here. We got to get these shots. This is incredibly important. It's straight out of the book. It's something we really want. And um, and so I'm talking to David Augie, executive producer, line producer on the show, and uh, and I'm like, we're in that park. What I can't remember the name of the park. It's just b- below the Coronado Bridge. I forget the name of it right now. You come over the bridge and it's right there. Yeah, right, right there. And and I go, hey Augie, look over at the skate park. You see that dad? That guy doesn't he look like Chris? And he's like. He, he does. It's like, let's go, let's go ask him if he can run. <laughs> and so we go over, we talk to this guy who's got his like, you know, 12 year old skateboarding in the skate park. We tell him the situation. He is former SEAL Team 6. This guy is former SEAL Team 6. He is like, I know Jack Carr's books. You want me to be Chris Pratt? Oh, I can run. <laughs> <laughs> and dude, we had so we we had so many moments like this in making this show. True serendipity, um, incredible to have another uh, member of the SEAL Team community step in. But that that it, it's remarkable. Amazing. I'm, remarkable. I'm gonna go back in my text because I remember when you texted me about that. Yeah, but I'd forgotten me about too. it. But yeah. uh, oh man, that is crazy. And and he's in there yeah. running. He's in there running, and and he's fantastic. He's a great double. And, um, and really it was important to us to be able to get down to Coronado for this episode in particular, get these shots in the show. Um, we shot this mainly around Los Angeles, uh, which was incredible by the way. And only thanks to tremendous support again from Amazon and MRC. But, um, I had spent two years in, in San Diego post-college, uh, love it down there. And, um, you guys obviously have spent all that time down there and, and, and we needed to, to, to nail that look. And we had to get down there and shoot some shots. And this was the episode where we did it. Once again, like just like with episode one, those director's cuts and then what was the network cut, like all those different cuts that come across. There was that such a cool scene that I love. And it's, you know, Stephen King calls it killing your babies. Um, You know, you have to you have to do it. Um, But uh, there's when Chris goes into that uh, into the team room and goes up there and we have the music going and it's powerful and he gets the keys and opens the door and the door shuts and he stands there and the music stops and it's silent. And he's just looking at all the cages of all the guys who are dead. The guys. The guys that are not 
powerful. didn't make it home. And it's such a powerful scene. There's just this, this yeah. the photo that's in the background, the, the painting that's in the background, um, all, right there. All meaningful. So powerful. And then the music starts again. Boom. And then we're back yep. in it. And, uh, you Boom. know, that, that one had to go, unfortunately. Yep. Uh, but it is such a powerful scene because, you know, those who have uh, have been in and have lost, fr- lost friends and have had to go into their gear, either it's overseas or at home before you turn it over to the family and all that sort of a thing. I mean, yep. it's just, uh, you, you, you're looking at their locker, you're looking at their cage, you're looking at their, their bags in a Connex box. And, uh, you know, there's just that, you know, the moment when you're looking at all that stuff and Chris captured it and you guys got it so well with the photography and the, the music at the right time. And it was just so perfect. But it had to go. So maybe in a uh, director's mm. cut at some point. Director's that'll, uh, cut. Yeah, yep. that, that's, uh, that's one for that one. The Terminal List podcast is presented by Kansas City Cattle Company. Kansas City Cattle Company believes in keeping things authentic, and they believe if you taste the product, you'll taste the difference. Kansas City Cattle Company is veteran-owned and operated and delivers Wagyu beef and other high-quality proteins with a palatable difference to all 50 states. They have Brookshire pork, pasture-raised chicken sourced from another veteran-owned company, and sustainably caught seafood. They're also known for their world-famous Wagyu hot dog, which was featured by foodandwine.com in a viral article saying they had found a hot dog that tasted like steak. Other bestsellers are their Wagyu steak, briskets, and tri-tip roasts. There's also been buzz about their Wagyu bacon cheeseburger brats. Other favorites include... Wagyu hanger steak, Wagyu bone-in ribeye, and their Wagyu chuck eye steaks. The team started Kansas City Cattle Company to bridge the gap in high-quality proteins and top-notch animal husbandry practices to the end consumer. They believe good protein starts with good conditions for the animals. As the company grew, they hired their first employee, a veteran, just getting out of the Army. From there, their new mission to hire an all-veteran staff was born. Today, their mission now includes serving high-quality protein to those they once served and helping other veterans find their new mission post-service. Save 15% on the exclusive Terminal List collection at kccattlecompany.com slash jackcar with code jackcar15. That is J-A-C-K-C-A-R-R-15. That's K-C Cattle Company k-c-c-a-t-t-l-e-c-o-m-p-a-n-y.com slash Jack Carr, J-A-C-K-C-A-R-R, and use that code Jack Carr 15. Man, I mean, what a, this episode, every episode is powerful. I mean, I couldn't be more, more humbled and, and, and honored by everything that you guys did for, for all of this. But we had a couple cool things also in this one, a little, a special scene in a bar. Um, and there's a real seal bar in Coronado. And I didn't name it in the book because I was like, man, if something actually happened there, because in some way, yeah, I just got to yeah. change the name. So, so now yeah. we, we have Rick's, so we have Rick's bar, bar and grill. You want to uh, talk about who plays Rick? Yeah. So we had this, uh, a fan, uh, film, a short that was made not just by a fan, but by a two professional actors um, who got together and uh, made a 10 minute short film about the origins of Tom Reese uh, and a teammate of Tom Reese's. And we learn how Reese's dad got the Eccles legend rifle that he gives 
Therese. And uh, they did such a good job with it at the height of COVID. Uh, they just wanted to do this thing. There was something that inspired them to, to get to do there. Tim Abel is the other actor that comes on board. Who's an amazing guy, former army ranger, uh, was in a, a really cool show that uh, Jerry Bruckheimer did back in the late nineties called soldier of fortune, kind of bringing some, some movie elements to, to television. And, uh, mm-hmm. and those guys got together and put together a cast and crew that was almost all veterans and filmed this 10 minute short and called fathers and sons. And I post it uh, every Father's Day and, uh, and do a little link to it. And there's on my website, there's a blog that goes into the, the details of the background. But uh, it was so powerful to watch this just 10 minutes. And it's just a conversation yeah. around a pool table. But yep. these guys did such an amazing job with it. Uh, and then I sent it to you and you saw it. And then yep. here we go. We have uh, our bartender in the terminal yep. list is Michael yep. Broderick. And, uh, I mean, what a great actor. I mean, he's in all, he usually plays cops and, and, you know, things like that, but he has such great range and he is, I mean, there's such great things ahead for him and I'm so cool. Uh, It's so cool of him to be involved in this project. So he's the bartender and then boom on the screen, we have my friend Katie Pavlich. And she's on the screen playing a, a newscaster. She's been a dear friend for years. Um, and so it was really cool of, uh, of you to include her in this. And uh, she came to the premiere. And it was really cool and really special to, to have her there for the premiere and to have her uh, in this episode. And then uh, her voice is in one of the trailers. And it's just just yep. super cool. So for fans of the of the book or people who have been following along from the beginning, you know, they'll be uh, they'll already watch the show before they see this. And they'll be like, wait a sec, that's the guy from fathers and sons and yeah. no way that's Katie Pavlich. Uh, so that I love those little things in, in here and to include even in other episodes where Reese is making some coffee and just in the background, there's a little honey, you know, yeah. and it took me a couple oh, of yeah. to find those. He took me a couple watches to, to find those, but yeah. uh, I love that those, uh, those things were in there. But, um, but getting back to that one scene where Chris is in the house and it's that the montage and he's looking at the screen and he puts those fingers up. Like this, like, where did that, where did that move come from? That was incredible. Uh, you know, I think sometimes like the devil's in the details and, and that includes memory as well. Right. And something like eye color can trigger so much. Right. And, and we talked a lot about, you know, how he would do that. And I think Chris ultimately came up with that final, um, action, but, but that, is one of my favorite beats is that kind of like the putting up to the camera and then the pop flash Mm -hmm. to the moment from the MRI clinic and there's Holder behind the mask. And that aspect, again, because we know we can't trust this guy's memory, he's off to the races with a big old question mark. All the tradecraft you're going to see now set against that tone, that paranoia. And... You know, I really love the 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 kind of day of tracking Holder and the Roy Boehm scene, all of these things that we pulled out of the book yeah. and, and put on screen. Um, but Chris never goes into, you know, the, the, the jokey Chris Pratt side, right? He keeps it serious. He keeps it dangerous the whole time. And Ben's with him every step of the way. Yeah. And kind of questioning, right? Kind of like he senses when when Reese shows up with that target package, he senses like, oh, there's a danger to my friend that I have not seen before. And Chris also crushes this episode in terms of that, like he's got a little bit of that, like manic energy. Yeah. 
right? Oh, yeah. He's, he's like got this need, this desire to be back on mission, to be done with grief, even though it's haunting him. And I love that performance in 102. Yeah. Because he just drives it. He just drives it. And, and Ben, he, he, in a way, right, he could call it out. He could stop things, but he just, he gets on board. Yeah. He gets on board. And Boozer... Our friend Boozer comes back into play. Oh, yeah, I want to talk about that and how that scene. This, yes. Yeah, that is a crazy scene. Eating an MRE. Uh, I love that scene. I love, I mean, Jared, you, you crush it in every single th- scene you're in. It's it's uh, awesome. I absolutely you. love you. it. People are going to gonna be ecstatic about everything that you do in this. Um, but uh, there's, a, there's a line that Ben has when he's going through that target package. You know, there's a few little lines here, and Ben provides, um, you know, a little bit of that, that humanization type of an element to this group because you do have that overseas. You know, you have people joking and saying things and going through that target package, and he's like, drinks light beer. That is suspect. You know, there's like, you know, someone would really say that. Like one of us would 100% see that and be like, yeah, uh-huh, guilty. You know, like, uh, like all that. There's so many great lines yep. like that, that, uh, that stand out to me. And then the recon scene, so many people reach out to me on the books and are like, man, I love that you went into how he went about figuring out where Holder lives, goes in, gets what he needs, the, the evidence that yes. he needs in there, uh, has the spray, has the WD 40 and sprays the, uh, yeah, the, hinges, the hinges and like all those things sets it up, takes the photo of the uh of the table there so we can get everything back in the exact proportion so because people can do things i mean put little tells out there you know you put your coffee cup down in your hotel room and you do it like that and then you come back in and if it's like a little off guess what somebody was in there going through your stuff like that that is that's that's real tradecraft type thing and and you know so he knows that and people that uh that know that world will be like I mean, some people will miss it. Like, why is he taking yeah. a picture of that? Oh, I guess he's putting it back the same way. But people that live in that world will be like, awesome. These guys really went into the details. They talked to people. They thought this through. Um, so I love that. Uses an alias that uh, harkens back to the earliest days of the SEAL teams. You know, I, I love doing that. Did that in the second book as, as well. I like try to drop something like that in each uh, in each book. Uh, have a little more Hartley development in this one. Um, yeah. I love the close target reconnaissance like we talked about. Um but uh, yeah, this episode, then we get to the scene, then we get to this, this end scene. And this is really the pivotal moment where am I crazy or is there something more to this? I've had my evidence here. I have Boozer using this nine mil. That doesn't, that doesn't add up. Um, uh, I have a few, uh, a few other things here, but this is really it. Um, yeah. And we get that name. We get Agnon um, and Jared is right there. And Jared, what was this scene like? Because people th- might think, oh, they just did some like green screen stuff and they, you know, whatever, all of a sudden Reese is back in, you know, overseas and, uh, and Jared is there and, and that sort of a thing. But this took physically moving a set around in real time as yeah. we were filming and Chris doing a crazy costume change and all of a sudden the camera's back. So what was it like filming that scene? Well, Dave can speak to the technical side of it because I still don't really even understand what <laughs> happened in that scene. Walls I, moved, I, right? I mean, walls literally, moved. And, literally yeah. walls moved. And and Dave, I think you explained it to me and Ellen explained it to me, you know, ahead of time. And I was like, I was like, okay, it's not that big of a deal, guys. I got this, you know, and whoa, I could not have been more wrong. Like I'm when this starts happening, it was like the room exploded, you know, like the cameras on Chris. And then it, it comes back and it's on me and I'm 
in the moment, you, you know, talking to Chris or supposed to be talking to Chris. And I see these literally the walls being pulled out behind, you, you know, cameras on me. So everything's going on behind the camera and I'm trying to stay in it and stay in this moment. And in my mind, I'm like, I cannot believe this is happening right now. You know, like this is, and Ellen is, when she takes the camera over, she holds on the wall. And this day, this is where you can explain everything that's going on in this moment. She holds on the wall, you know, and doesn't move it. She's looking. And then I just see her eye, her left eye just come and tracks over and looks at me while she's, it was like a, a shark or something. It just boom, looked at me while she's still filming this way. And I'm, I'm just blown away by the whole thing that's happening, you know? So we get the first take and the first take, I completely blew it. Like Chris was supposed to be. <laughs> Right. You know, supposed to be talking to him right here at the, you know, looking at the camera, but really I'm talking over here to where he actually was while he was getting changes whole, you know, like, okay, that was a practice run. Let's do it again. Now we ended up getting it, but wow, that was an incredible, incredible scene to be a part of, to be living in and, and doing it and then see all that happen. I, I've never experienced something like that previous to that or after that and dave once again you can explain how it was all done because i i can't i can't articulate it because i still don't really understand it all <laughs> uh, i love i love hearing your experience inside of it jared i think that's super cool and um you know again the key uh word here is teamwork 100 percent, right this is when you when you take on a, a moment like this every department has to be on their a game and totally synced up um, one of the reasons we hired Ellen, uh, we knew this big conflation would happen in, during the interrogation of Holder. And um, she was a director of photography on an awesome movie from 2004 called Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It's a really trippy movie with um, Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet in it. And it deals a lot with memory. Mm. And they do what are called in-camera effects. And so what Jared is describing and what's called an in-camera effect. So we're, you know, in a set, we have a set, we're filming, we're not using visual effects, we're using in-camera effects. And so the camera is the kind of subjective lens. And what you can do is if you get to a seam in a wall or like a door frame, you can use that seam, that hard line to marry two pieces of film together. So we're able to take a pause on that line for about 45 seconds while Chris finishes his wardrobe change, right? Because we're swapping the room and the wall out behind Chris, but we're also swapping out his wardrobe and what he's wearing to place him back uh, in Iraq. And then, boom, the camera comes off and we're back into the scene. And when we edit it together, you take out that chunk of time in between and it's seamless, Right. It's and so wild. his memory, his timeline has shifted from present day with Holder into the past with Boozer back into present day with Holder. And the whole thing with this, as he was um, interrogating or as he is interrogating Holder, is we wanted to show that his mind is slipping and slipping and slipping. But what can he trust? And this is the greatest thing about the, the book and the character in the book. Right. No matter what. He can trust his heart mm. and he knows, he knows, even though Holder might not be the assassin, the trigger man, he has to know who is because Reese knows he didn't kill his wife and daughter. And so he makes that final press and he breaks 
holder in that interrogation and gets the next name on the list, Saul Agnon. But boom, those, and you have these in the book as well, these like just tidal wave headaches that come from whatever's happening in his head. And he's down. And this was a great moment um, for our stunt team and, and Romwell, uh, who, you know, is Chris's stunt double and, and fight coordinator. And Chris is doing this. There was a fight that was going to break out between Holder and Reese on that bed. And they're in there trying to choreograph it. And it's really not working. And I can't remember, but I think it was Rom's had just, he's like, I, I just shoot him. Hundred percent, right? And and that gives you that shocking. It's a cool shot. <laughs> it's a wicked so shot. Great. Yeah, yeah. And and this is something. Even though the first name on the list is different, the impact on Reese is the same because Jack, you have this in the book. Boykin is the first name uh, on the list in, in the book, and you talk about how pulling the trigger on Boykin is different. Than pulling the trigger downrange. Yep. Like he's crossed over. Just committed murder. I think that's the sound. Just committed murder. Right? He's crossed over. And it's that moment and the ramifications of that moment that then carry into the final shot that Ellen built of Reese walking down that courtyard and stopping to look up at the flag, understanding that this is different. So really, uh, love love this episode for the deep psychology of it. You know, like one one giant, right? Pilot, huge. So many days, so much money, so many set pieces, <laughs> so much character. And then we come in to 102 and, and we suck it down, but we get in Reese's head. And kudos to, again, this man up here, Chris Pratt. There he is. Driving it. Uh I love that we get to open up the relationship more um, with Katie Burnick, the scene between them in the backyard where they kind of uh, strike the uneasy alliance, all the tradecraft of the yep. phone. Tradecraft, <laughs> yep. Yeah, and that's, that's a tough the, one because tradecraft like yeah. that, when you're talking about technology, evolves yeah. so quickly these days. So, so quickly, yeah. it's like, uh, but, uh, you know, at the time when I went to write that, I reached out to people in that world yeah. and gave yeah. them the scenario and said, hey, what would you do? How would you do it? Yeah. And then those guys let me know. And then I wrote that into the into the novel. And I think yeah. uh, you guys captured it so well. In that oh, that's s- a hat tip to, to Max Adams, who was always talking to to his boys on that side of things nice. to, to nail down that language but um but yeah it it encapsulates i think what chris was so excited to play yeah. you know that that notion of a guy who cannot trust his memory but he can trust his heart you know i struggled with that line briefly in the book just committed murder because i was like okay yeah opening i have a a uh, protagonist and i'm calling him a murderer in the first couple pages i was like i'm going i'm going with it you know like not holding holding back um yeah so uh you know and that that really set the tone for for everything but also in this episode jared got to eat an mre did you take a bite of that thing or did you like (laughs) you fake it was there something good in there did you like replace it with something really good for hollywood funny you ask that Um, (laughs) excuse me i don't know the answer uh yeah i went i went real deal i mean that's that's acting i'm like if i'm gonna eat this thing i want to i want to be in it like like it was back in the day but dave and all his wisdom came up and was like hey jared i'm just letting you know don't just every take 
eat three or four bites. Yeah. We're going to be doing this take for ah. basically hours, you know? And so that saved me and probably the rest of the crew and everybody. Oh, dude. What would have been the ramifications had I been eating five, six MREs worth of a, oh. you know, I think it's a lasagna or something like yeah. that. Like, that wouldn't have been good. So Dave saved me good. on that one. Nice yeah. work. Nice work. Yeah. No, it's perfect. I love it. And everybody who has ever eaten an MRE will like just be, well, yep. it'll bring them back, you know? <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. Yep. And then uh, in this one also, so we have a 1911. So in the book, I had to figure that out, uh, that out too. And uh, I love that, you know, that level of, of detail that, uh, that you went to. And we have a, we have a Kimber 1911 in this case. So where did that, uh, where did that one come from? Oh, you know, we should give a, a big hat tip right now to uh, Gary Tours, Mike Panovics, our incredible props department and weapons masters. Um, really uh, spared no expense to make sure we had uh, the authentic version of every weapon and the gun safety on set yep. was wow second to none people ask me about that all the time because of events yeah. that have happened since, since. and you yeah. know for me i was i was watching because this is my first time obviously yes. I, you know come from the background in which i do so i'm very curious about these things yeah. and i'm watching and i'm seeing mike there panovics who also is former marine and land yep. cruiser yep. cruiser enthusiast he has an awesome yep. 80 series which is in the background of one of the scenes by the way yes, in is. the show it, in, uh, this, in this episode <laughs> and he's awesome so it's a black yep. uh, 80 series for the land cruiser fans out there uh, but uh to see him wait like okay uh chris is there they have the, they're touching up some blood or whatever they're doing on on chris he's talking to the director maybe and there's mike waiting it's not like he's like hey chris here you go as he's talking to somebody else nope he is right there waiting, waiting, waiting. When Chris is done, here we go. Boom. Here's the weapon. Here's the condition. Here's the blank. Boom. Chris checks it, you know, personally. Yes. Boom, boom. And yes. I was like, man, these guys are on it. Um, yep. And I learned all about the different types of blanks for how far you have to be and all that stuff. Yep. Um, but yep. what a professional crew. Uh, absolutely incredible. Incredible. And and again, huge hat tip on, on that Kimber. And then... A uh, little hat tip to Jared Shaw as well. The uh, what what is that uh, wrapped in when Ben hands it to Reese? Do you remember? I'm blanking on it. It's a Texas Texas flag. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Got Man. to. Got to. You gotta have that. Yep. Yep. No, it 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 was. I love that moment. You know, because Ben kind of Ben could have let it end right there right and ben gets that information about holder pulling those prints before the murders and that's enough right yeah. right that's enough and ben ben hands that it's a little devil on his shoulder right which is something i think the novel does so well ben's kind of that little devil on his shoulder and uh and then we go into that final run and boom love it and given ben given Reese the pistol you know is kind of equivalent like when we're stacking the door getting ready to, to make entry the, the the number two guy giving the number one guy the squeeze of like take it like that was yeah. the nice. same way of, of Ben saying like all right buddy you're not crazy you're right boom here you go like here's the information you need here's Boozer's pistol you know like go yep. to work it's time you know so <laughs> I, I love that I love how that whole thing played out it's just very well done Man, so cool. And we can't uh, finish this episode without talking about War Pigs. Ozzy. Yes. Oh, man. Dude. I mean, 
Perfect. And the first time I heard that in association with the show, um, because in my mind, as I'm writing the book, I'm thinking about man comes around. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. thinking about yep. Johnny Cash. Um, yep. And in my original book, well, may, may, Jared, I'm not sure if you have that one or not. I forget if it made it into the galley and just didn't make it into the uh, actual one because apparently it's expensive to uh, option for a publisher <laughs> yeah. to get, get a song from an estate uh, like Johnny Cash. Uh, so I had different stanzas of the Johnny Cash song throughout yeah. from mm-hmm. right before the prologue, before part one, part two, part three, and yeah. the epilogue. And that was kind of the song yeah. mm-hmm. that I had that was the theme of the novel that, uh, that I listened to. Um, and then, and of course, when it came time to publish, uh, the only thing I could use was there's a man going around taking names names because Johnny Cash got that from somebody else, an unknown author in the 1800s. So there, so he didn't have that as part of the estate, you know, intellectual property or whatever it's called. So I could use that. So that frames, uh, frame the novel for me because I couldn't use the other stanzas from the, from the Johnny Cash song, but we saw, and we were, we were filming episode three, I think, or right before episode three, um, or during episode three where this, uh, I mean, it was just for cast and crew. So it wasn't an official trailer, but it was the, the, like a trailer up to that point to show Amazon. I think what, what we've been up to, uh, to fire everybody up and bam, war pigs is in this Dude, thing. So, and I'm like, so, oh my gosh, this is absolutely incredible. This is perfect. Uh, where did that come from? So, you know, another place where we can hit on uh, different members of the team who make this. So post-production, it's a massive effort, right? And and we, a lot of us, uh, or, or a lot of the crew, will, will finish up when we wrap production. But then the showrunner and producers will move into post-production and in post-production you have your editors you have your visual effects you have your music you have your sound you have your color correction these aspects that really finalize and finish off the and polish up the product uh the music supervisor huge huge part in the show kevin edelman uh is our music supervisor and um and when you get into these scenes uh he'll present um, different options to the editor. Here we had Scott Turner crushing it. And, um, and then the editor will cut, cut those songs in. And as soon as we heard War Pigs, we're like, ooh, because this is Ben's sound, right? We're living in Ben's world here. We're in his, his apartment as they, as they are sifting through uh, this data and intelligence pulled off of Holder's computer. So we loved it. And then we loved it so much, we put it, like you just mentioned, Jack, on what is the sizzle reel, sizzle which reel. is the thing you show... Uh, the network, the crew, the cast to get everyone fired up when we're all exhausted halfway through this march. And um, and then they love the sizzle reel so much, they put it in the trailer. And we didn't know if and they'd be able to do that, right? Because there's we, costs we associated. Sure, they and- loved it so much. They they uh, granted it for uh, full use in advertising. And uh, it's been awesome. Absolutely perfect uh, for the tone and power of the show. Oh man. And Jack Osborne reached out to me. Um, we have, you have mutual friends and he reached out to me when he saw that and was like, I'm sending it to dad. Uh, oh, and yeah. so that was, that was really cool. So, cool. uh, so Ozzy has seen it and, uh, and, and knows about this, this production and black Sabbath being involved, uh, the way it is. It's such a powerful, uh, song to include and, uh, just Love incredible, it. just incredible. So great, man. Awesome. Anything else stand out about episode 102 uh, for you guys before we move on to episode 103? Uh, no, I think that's good. I mean, the, the only thing, you know, only piece of music we haven't mentioned is uh, Eric Church's um, song that uh, 
Jared, you you brought into the mix here. You hear Reese playing it on his guitar, and uh, the title of the song means a lot. So you you should mention that real quick, Jared. It was uh, a man who's gonna die young is the name of that song, and uh, yeah, we were able to to get that. Eric Church and his crew were uh, very kind and and hooked us up on it and let us you know use it there and that was actually chris's idea because chris mm-hmm. would strum that song all the time love it you know and yeah and then he's like you know what we we need to get we need to get this in there that that i want to play that and so reached out been good buddies with eric and his wife for years and they were all about it they're like absolutely you know and and uh yeah dave that's a great great pullback pullback on that one that's a great song great just uh there's some meaning in that one absolutely i know when chris pitched it he where it came from for him you know on wanting to go with that song and yeah you don't get you don't really catch it in there the eric church fans will know it you know but it's uh he he puts his own spin his own his own version of it and it's it's great really great Man, I remember reading that when uh, when when it came in the in script form. Um, man, I love all the personal connections to throughout this process. I mean, there's so many personal touch points with everybody involved. Is uh, that makes it really special? I mean, across it the does. board. So, man, cool. I'm, I'm learning more things. I'm learning more in this episode. I can't wait till we go to episode three. What am I going to find out then? But uh, <laughs> man, thank you guys for taking the time to do this, and uh, thank you to everybody else out there for listening to the Terminal List Podcast, Ironclad Original, brought to you by veteran-owned and operated Kansas City Cattle Company. And if you like the show, be sure to leave a rating and review five stars, and. Follow me on at Jack Carr USA for more photos. Digilio Films is out there too. Follow him on the Instagram as well. And uh, Jared, we know you're not on the social channels, um, but you know where you are. You are on screen in the terminal list, sir. crushing Absolutely. it at every stage. Thank so you, thanks, Thank everybody. You. We'll see you at episode 103.